0: All of us are chasing after or fighting for something. All of us are kind of looking to establish our place um, in our worlds, in our community, in our little bubbles. Um, Kids, uh, and most of the kids are gone, but kids and teenagers, I mean, we, we see this in academics in maybe learning to play an instrument or in athletics, that you spend a lot of time wanting to make yourself known to maybe be the best or to strive or to achieve. Those folks in here who are in college or maybe who are considering college, maybe one day you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Parents. Parents, we spend a lot of time fighting to provide for our kids so that they may carve out their place in the world. They may have their own little kingdoms, their own places to kind of call their own. And I want to give you a major buzzkill this morning. None of that satisfies. None of it satisfies. I could bring up here this morning, and some of you parents would be upset with me if I probably did this, but I could bring up um, some people in our congregation who have made it as doctors or lawyers or engineers or parents who have successfully launched kids from the home, and it wouldn't take too long for you to know that if that's what you're living for, if that is the goal and aim of your life, that that doesn't satisfy a new goal A new achievement, a new way to establish your own kingdom, then comes into focus. And and the problem is not that these aren't good things, but they're not enough. They're not enough. Man, don't we spend a lot of time working on our little kingdoms. I mean, I think about the amount of time that some of you and some of you would be judgmental if you came and looked at my yard. But how much time some of you spend on your yard to make the introduction to your kingdom look very nice. Like I said, a lot of you would judge me for the introduction to my kingdom. (laughs) You know, as Spate was talking about the war this morning... It's interesting that you have two kingdoms that are clashing, and there's two different motivations for fighting. We're not really sure what Putin's motivations are. They seem pretty self-serving. What he has declared himself is that he wants to make a name for himself. He wants to be known in the history books as the one who united the old Russia I think he probably wants a city named Putingrab or something. That sounds like a nice Russian name. And we've all heard the horror stories of the Russian military who some of them didn't even know that they were going to fight and some of them are heartbroken and some of them don't know why they're fighting or some of them don't even really want to fight for this kingdom. And then there's the Ukrainians. And President Zelensky, who's been able to broadcast himself and to put out the message that they're fighting for something much bigger. And a lot of people, as they have listened to this man, have said that they've come away inspired. And he certainly has inspired a nation, hasn't he? He's he's inspired a world. I mean, where else do you get things like where you have these professional athletes, these boxers who have made all this money, and they go back... They give up all that they have. They give up the kingdom that they've established for themselves. And they go and they pick up weapons to fight for their country. I think one of the first stories that I heard was of Miss Ukraine. uh, Where she picks up a weapon. I think one of the images that will just be seared maybe on my brain. Is early on before they weren't allowing men to leave. But of stories of men who were taking their families to the border. And they were walking back to fight, inspired. As Christians, we have so much to fight for. We don't fight with weapons of guns and bombs and whatever else, but we are called to fight the kingdom of heaven, we're called to be people who take the gospel, we're called to be people who are who are salt and light, who are to love in such a way that the world sees our God through us and they see his kingdom. And so one of the things that I'm struck with this morning is that why is we why are we as Christians so uninspired? may say, easy, it's your fault, Lewis. Your sermons aren't good enough. Guilty. Maybe the music's not good enough to rile you up. Maybe, maybe you're not listening to the right podcast or reading the right books. That's not the answer, is it? We all know. We all know there's only one thing that should inspire us as Christians. and That's our view of Jesus Christ. That when we see him, when we see his grace, when we see his mercy, when we see his might, when we see his power. And when we realize who we are as sinners, and yet he loved us and that we get to be a part of this kingdom, we should all be inspired warriors for the kingdom of heaven. But unfortunately, unfortunately, I think we, like the rest of the world, get so caught up in establishing and making and creating our own kingdoms. We get so caught up in this. That we live these uninspired lives. If you've been with us in our study through the book of Mark, you know That one of the drumbeats that has just gone on through this book. is just over and over and over. The drumbeat is Jesus proclaiming who he is. He's constantly proclaiming who he is. and, and, And we know this as well. As he's proclaiming who he is. It demands a response. And it matters. When you see Jesus for who He is, the call on our lives that we have studied many, many times in our study in this book is to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Him. It is what makes sense. It's the natural conclusion. It's the inspired life of working for His kingdom, laying down your life for that. And it's over and over and over in this book. And here, once again, in our text this morning... We have Jesus, we have Jesus in the final few days of his life before he's crucified. We have Jesus bringing this back up again. He's in the temple. Do you think that here in his last days in the temple that he's saying important things or he's just teaching nice little sermonettes? I think he's here. He's intentional He's serious. He's on mission. And the words that we have him speaking are about the essence of who he is. And isn't it frustrating as you read the Gospels that you have Jesus, the Son of God, in the flesh, proclaiming who he is and all these people, and they're just missing it. They're just missing it. And it's so frustrating that they just can't see it. And it's not just any group of people that aren't seeing it. Jesus particularly here is talking to the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. We have here Jesus as he is teaching here in the temple, in the synagogue. There are many people here, but he is one of the groups that he's speaking to are the religious elite. This group of people knew Their Bible. They had taught on the Messiah coming. They knew the prophecies about the Messiah coming. They were longing, they were waiting, and they were expecting. And they're missing it. They're missing it. Because he's not what they expected. Look at verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? It's interesting here, you have Jesus speaking, and he's speaking to this group of people, and he's pointing out the scribes, and the scribes would have been the the, the best of the best teachers. They would have been the expositors of the text. They would have been the people who, who knew God's word and were proclaiming it, In a way where it was heard and understood. And here you have Jesus going right after this group. And he's saying, how is it that the scribes are missing it? How is it that the experts in the Old Testament, the experts in the prophecy, the experts in the Psalms. Can't understand who the Messiah is. What's interesting about our text this morning. Is that it's a riddle, it's it's, it's a parable, it's it's a riddle that Jesus turns and as he's teaching and as he's teaching the people, he does it in this this riddle form and we're going to get into that in a moment. But that Jesus is proposing this question in such a way to get them to think to really to trap them. We've seen them lay traps for Jesus, and Jesus always gets out of them. What do you think is going to happen when he sets a trap for them? They fall right into it. In the reality of this question, of this riddle, that when we understand it and when we unpack it, we see that this is telling us this huge, huge, massive idea about who Jesus is. Notice the debate that Jesus is bringing up is about this title, the Son of David. And I want to say just a couple things about this title that we're not going to go into an exhaustive study. I'm going to just stay real surface level here and you're going to say, duh, when I'm done with what I'm getting ready to say. But but, but there are at least a couple things that Jesus meant or that is meant by Son of David. One is actually... From the lineage, flesh and blood, descendant of David. And we see these genealogies in the New Testament where Jesus was in the line of David. He was a literal son, a literal descendant of David. And we see that through the genealogies. The second thing that I think sometimes we miss... Is that this title, as we use it, Son of David, what would have been brought to mind is that the Messiah, the Christ, as we see in this passage, is going to be someone that is like David. Like David. They were looking for a man that was like his descendant, David. And some of the things we know about David is he was a mighty military man. That God chose David to unite his people. And that through David's conquests, through David's military prowess, through David, that God united his people and established a nation, established a time of peace that they, had not, they have not known since then. In other words, when they look back at their history, they would consider this time of David the good old days. The good old days. So, when they hear this idea about one coming who is a son of David, they're thinking about one that is coming who will make them free, one that will make them as a nation strong, one that brings peace, an end to the thriving, a people of power, a people of destiny. And one of the things that you see is that when you Jesus is saying that he is the son of David, this is not what is going on with the Jewish people. Isn't it fascinating? In first Corinthians, we're told that the Jews were seeking signs and Jesus performed many signs and miracles, but they weren't the ones that the Jewish people were looking for. And So here we have Jesus. He has no sword. No army. He was not politically savvy. And he had the audacity to say something like this. Given to Caesars, what's Caesars? He was not. Who they were looking for. And not only was he not who they were looking for, he was a man that was causing trouble. He was a man that was causing trouble. I mean, think about it. If you were a religious leader of the day and you were just convinced that you were right, you would be looking for the Messiah to come along and to validate what you were doing. To validate your lifestyle. To validate your kingdom. And Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was constantly stirring the pot. Jesus was constantly messing with the religious institutions and the religious leaders of the day in such a way that they just could not stand him. I mean, think about just the week. And I know we've taken about two or three months to go over this week in Jesus' life. But just think about this week that Jesus rides into Jerusalem during Passover on a donkey, proclaiming, Making the proclamation through his actions that he is the Messiah and the Christ. And then he goes into the temple and starts turning over tables. And then he begins to teach, and he begins his teaching with this parable that is aimed right at the Pharisees. He is stirring the pot. I mean, look at look at the way that Jesus is is talking. Look at at chapter 12, verse 24. Remember this verse, and Jesus said to them. Is this not the reason you are mistaken that you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God? How would you take that? You being an expert in your field, let's say you're a physician here this morning. And you have this rebel rouser come into your office. And it's like. uh, The reason you're mistaken. Is it that you don't know the human body? Have you not been educated properly? Is this the reason you're mistaken? Jesus is. Causing. Trouble. And these folks. These folks saw it. One of the. One of the ways in which we're told about the Messiah in the Old Testament is through what's called messianic psalms. And that may be a fancy word, but it's just... If you go to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, which are songs, then there are several of them that foretell or tell about the coming Messiah or the coming Christ. And the Jewish leaders of the day would have known this really well. They would have known these psalms really well. And isn't it interesting that on two occasions here in this last week, that Jesus goes to these psalms and just really, really jabs these guys. I mean, the first one is when he was telling the the parable I referenced earlier of the vine grower, where he's telling this parable, and he's there and he's preaching. And remember that Jesus says, they sent his son and you killed him. And then he says this psalm in, in verse 10 of chapter 12. Again, have you even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. And in case you don't think that the religious leaders understood what he was getting by, by doing by saying, here, here is this psalm and I'm applying it to me. I'm the Messiah. The next verse tells us all we need to know. They were seeking to seize him and yet they feared the people. Poking... The bear. Today, we're going to see in our text that Jesus again quotes this messianic Psalms, quotes Psalm 110. And let me read it to you real quick. I'm going to read you more. I'm going to read you the whole Psalm. The first part is what Jesus quotes. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the wound of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge nations He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Clearly a messianic psalms. And Jesus, Jesus, as he is confronting these religious leaders, is claiming, this is who I am. And boy, did they get it. They did seize him. They did put him on trial. And they did kill him. Remember with me some of the things that we. Hear them say, hear people say about Jesus as he is on the cross. In Mark, this is recounted in chapter 15. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Notice this. Notice how they mocked him. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating him. His head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him after they had mocked him. They took the purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charged against him read again, notice the mocking. The king of the Jews. And in the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. They got it. They understood his claims. And we see it on the cross. See, you're not who you said you were. And this is what you get. Some Messiah, some King. Let's go back to this riddle. Some, when they read this, it's, it's a little confusing. Jesus is speaking, and he says, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then he quotes Psalm 118. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And you may what say, what in the world? Is going on. Now. Jesus is not denying. That the Messiah or the Christ is the son of David. He's kind of asking a rhetorical question here. And we know this as Jesus was getting ready to go into Jerusalem. When he's getting ready for the triumphant entry. We had blind Bartimaeus. And blind Bartimaeus was the one who proclaimed Jesus's. Entry into the kingdom. And do you remember the title that blind Bartimaeus was screaming to Jesus? Son of David. Son of David. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. All of the events surrounding Jesus coming into Jerusalem was Jesus taking on this title. Was him taking on this idea from the Old Testament that he is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is owning This prophecy. Look at how Jesus. Sets them up. Jesus says. That David himself. Verse 36. David himself said in the Holy Spirit. Notice the emphasis here. Jesus is saying David is the author of this psalm. David, King David, the one whose son is going to be the Messiah, this David, this important man, and then Jesus doubles down and he not only says that David is the one who spoke and penned this psalm, but then he says. Inspired or in the Holy Spirit. So not only is he saying that David is the author of this, he's saying that these are God's very words. And then Jesus catches them in this hermeneutical trap. And Jesus says this. The Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand. And so the way to understand this would be David speaking. If we just change a little bit and say this. God. Said to David's son. Lord. Or God said to my Lord. God said to my David's Lord. And this was totally. Totally against culture. The son would never call the father Lord. There's a pecking order. The son. Doesn't get the kingdom until dad is gone. And so, in no way ever, anyhow, would you have David's son calling David the other way around. This is confusing. In no way ever would you have David calling his son Lord. And think about the trap that was set. These guys who who knew the word and they're like, oh, wait a minute. What's going on here? What is he saying? And he's saying this son whom David is calling Lord is sitting at God's right hand. And Picture this. This isn't a seat, right? This isn't a physical seat. This is the denotion of power, of reign, of kingliness. The Messiah, the Christ, is Lord over David. And the key here is that they had no category for us. They were expecting a man like David, and Jesus was saying, the reason you don't understand who I am is because your expectations have all been wrong. And then I want to pause for a second and say if we, would have, if we were to go all throughout the Old Testament and look at all the prophecies about the Messiah, about the Christ, we would come to some similar conclusions as these religious people. And so you may say, okay, Lewis, well, if that's the case, what is the problem here? The problem is that they weren't listening to Jesus. They weren't listening to Jesus. And so when they looked at Jesus, they were looking at him saying, he's not enough. He's not enough. He doesn't even have a, he's nomadic. He doesn't have a home. Who's his army? These Folks that are traveling around with him. That's not much of an army. But They just didn't see, did they? They didn't see. Let's go back to the cross. We know the irony. We know the beauty. We know the power. We know that they didn't take his life from him. That he willingly laid down his life life. We know that he wasn't going after some earthly kingdom, but because of his death, burial and resurrection, that he is the king of kings. And Lord of Lords, we know that because of his obedience on that cross, that God didn't just give him the name son of David, but he gave him the name above all names. They couldn't see the grandeur for what it is. And not only that. But because of his resurrection and what he told us after he was raised from the dead is that he is coming back and he is going to rule and he is establishing a kingdom. But this kingdom isn't temporary. This kingdom is forever and it's eternal. And the power that is defeated is not just the Roman army, but it's sin, death, Satan, powers, and principalities. That they are no more, that he has defeated them. And so what we see that they weren't understanding is that it wasn't that they were, the problem was they were thinking too little of him. They didn't have a high enough view of Messiah. And Jesus was here to blow their minds. And the problem is, they couldn't see it. Couldn't see it. I think it's here that some of us may find ourselves. Many of us, as we read the New Testament along with the Old Testament, and have more revelation than what they did, are still doing the same thing as these religious leaders. That we read and we look and we create in our own head and in through our reading a Jesus that fits nicely into our kingdom. Jesus that doesn't mess with us too much. A Jesus that supports our goals, our dreams, our expectations. We're not seeing him for who he is. We're seeing him as a savior that serves us. And I want to point out my profession Look in verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake Offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Whose kingdom were they building? And it's you don't have to look around far. To see pastors and religious people that are building their own kingdoms, they're not building the kingdom of Christ. They're not living out, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. They're not living out, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow. They're creating their own kingdoms. What about you? One of the things that's fascinating to me looking at this text is to see what insecurity does. When we get insecure about something, we often lash out in powerful ways to try to um, ward off danger. And do you see it in this text? I mean, doesn't it stick out to you that these scribes, these religious leaders would devour widows homes? How insecure do you have to be to 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 found your kingdom based upon devouring people who are in difficult situations? How insecure do you have to be to kill Jesus just to maintain your own little kingdom? Many of us, and me included, oftentimes care way more about our money, our power... The path of our kids, our status, than we do the kingdom of God. If we really view Jesus for who he says he is, how would we respond? How would we live? What would we do? If we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We would live these inspired lives of awe and wonder and joy and glory. That are marked by us laying down our lives for his kingdom. Because we know that it's worth it. And we know that this world is not all that there is. But man. Man, we are caught in this trap of living differently. And what I see, one of the things that I see in this passage that I think we often miss is an invitation. Did you miss it? Did you notice at the end of verse 40, when he's talking and he's pointing out these scribes and he's pointing out their hypocrisy, that he's saying... The condemnation will be greater. I think this is a merciful act of Jesus to say to these scribes, please hear this warning. It doesn't have to be this way. What about when Jesus was quoting this Psalm? You know, Jesus is the author of the Bible, and he could have ended this quote anywhere he wanted. Jesus could have very easily said David. Himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and it would have accomplished his task, right? Why in the world? And I think we know. Would Jesus continue in this quotation until I put your enemies beneath your feet? And what I want you to hear in the context is this. Who are the enemies? Who are the ones that are going to arrest him, betray him and put him on a cross? I pray, I pray that we would hear this as an invitation. I pray that we would hear this as an invitation to begin to live a life. A life that is not based on creating our own kingdoms. That's not based on creating our our own power structures. That are against and working in the opposite ways of the kingdom of God. But that we would hear this as an invitation this morning. To see Jesus for who he is. And to start truly living. Living in such a way that is full of Joy, because it's based on the love and forgiveness of Christ living in such a way where we are secure, because if this thing with Putin doesn't tell you anything, it should tell you this. You're not secure. You're not secure. Putin is surrounded by more money and more nuclear weapons than anybody else in this world, and we see his insecurity coming out. How secure are you? How secure is your little kingdom? Do you want to be secure? You want to be secure. You fight for what is worth fighting for. For his kingdom. For his kingdom. The call this morning. The call this morning is to look at Christ. And be inspired. Do you believe that Jesus is who he is claiming to be? Do you believe that Jesus is not only who he says to be, he is, but that he has done what he has said that he has done? And do you believe that he is going to do what he says that he is going to do? And if you do, if you do, my call to you. Is to look to Him. To be inspired. And to join the fight. The fight that is worthwhile. Not a fight against other people. But a fight for other people. Where we lay down our lives in love. To display Christ and His mercy to the world. So that other people when they look at us. And when they look at our lives. That they see men. And women who are displaying Jesus. That's the kind of people we want to be, is it not? Is it not, church? So I pray, and I will end by praying, that we can be inspired by hearing the words of our Savior and seeing how great He is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We fall short. As John taught us last week. We can't do it. But you can. And you have told us. That if we would trust and believe. That you would do it through us. We could be your sons and your daughters. Your ambassadors. Salt and light that are here to display your glory so that others might look at our lives and to see your greatness. Help us to be a people. Help us to be a people who are inspired by you to live in such a way, to live in such a way that we are the people of your kingdom. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your son. Who made all this possible through his death, burial and resurrection. And it's only in his name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.